an amazing thing. This is, I'm convinced that this is God's time for us to study this book. I really can't wait to get towards the end of Jeremiah, uh, where I see all these things building up to this. Uh, there's some just amazing things that happen, and, and I just, I see us in the people of Israel, you know, the people of Judah. Um, you know, we we are not as faithful as we should be, even with the Lord Christians. You know, we tend to tend to slack. Reminds me of this this song written by Robert Robinson. Um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What's the name of that? What is that song? Is it Come Thou Found? Anyway, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, and that's a great old hymn. And uh, how many people can relate to that? Prone to wander. You know, I wasn't asking for hands, all these hands, but I've, God bless you people for being so humble and so tender. Uh, but we can relate to that, can't we? And so we can relate to what's happening here. Uh, but let's adopt the heart of Jeremiah, who broke because cause God's people were so enticed by the gods of the Canaanites. And it was like it was God's biggest fear. Now, I know God knows the end from the beginning, and he understood you know, but when he challenged Israel initially to go into the promised land, he gave them specific instructions not to embrace their idolatry and their false gods. And yet they did. So here we have uh, Jeremiah. Now, keep your place in Jeremiah too. I want to go back to Proverbs chapter 5 briefly, just as a little introduction. Proverbs chapter 5. And uh, it, it, I'm not going to read much of it, it's there for you to read. I'm, I'm going to try and be really discreet. Um, it's almost like this, the book, the Song of Solomon, is um, it's a book about marriage. It's a book about the love and um, physical intimacy between a man and a woman, uh, which the world has corrupted today. Uh, we use the three-letter word that you know just describes anything related to physical, a person's physical desires. And we've really cheapened it. Um, but to, to God, that's a holy thing. The physical relationship between a man and a woman is not something to be shunned. You read the, the Song of Solomon, very explicit, but in a marriage context, it's okay. In fact, it's holy in a marriage context. And in and, and Proverbs chapter 5, uh, pro- a lot of Proverbs, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 5, some other Proverbs. It's Solomon warning his son about the dangers of sexual immorality and how important it is that he understands that these, these drives that you have as a young man uh, were put there by God and they're to be, to be fulfilled in a God-honoring way. And So look what he says, uh, partly, uh, in Proverbs chapter 19, uh, in fact, we're not going to read the beginning of the verse, but he refers to a loving uh, deer, the loving hind is a deer, and a graceful doe, the, the word roe speaks of a doe. Um, and this was something that was very common in Asian, Arab, Persian poetry, where the gazelle, the antelope, the deer species, as it were, were often used in poetry to describe images of beauty. And that's how it's used here. And it is challenging a husband uh, about his relationship with his wife. And in the second part of verse 19, it commands a husband, it says, Be thou ravished always with her love. And I love that word ravished. 
ravished. It means to be exhilarated, to be enraptured. One commentary, uh, one lexicon said, the word literally comes from a word which means intoxicated. And, uh, you know, I still remember, and, and you men would relate, I, you know, I can't relate, I, I don't understand. I know that women um, like the attention of men, <laughs> but I just know uh, that when I was a young boy, I was brought up Catholic, and, and uh, I had moments where I wanted to be a priest. I even set up a little altar in my bedroom, and I would pray the rosary, and I had a statue. And, uh, you know, there were times where I felt religious. And um, don't mock me about this, okay? Uh, I would even use my G.I. Joes as priests sometimes. <laughs> and then I got to an age where I found out about girls. And, uh, you know, if you're a priest, you can't marry. Uh, and so that took that off the table, you know? It took that off the table. Because I was attracted to, the, to females, just like all men are. In fact, that's why I got married. I married the prettiest woman on the face of the earth. And you men, I hope you feel the same too, if you're married. Um, but here's the key. Look at Proverbs chapter 5. It says, be thou ravished always with her love. That's a command. To be enthralled, to be intoxicated. And then the next verse. Why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? He was speaking of the marriage covenant and how important it is when a man and a woman enter into this relationship that it be a consecrated covenant. That men, don't be ravished. The, the way you should, you know, when it comes to your wife, you've got, you know, indulge, embrace, follow the passion that puts you there. And again, I'm not going to go into great detail. But then the next challenge. Why? Don't be ravished with another woman. It's a violation of the covenant. A very serious thing to those, those feelings and those desires that you have towards women. Your, your wife should not be directed towards someone that's not your wife. Very serious. Now the reason I say that, and the reason I take you to this verse... It's because God understood how He created men and women. And He understood the need for, you know, a man will leave his father, join unto his wife, they will become one flesh. He knew that that relationship, that marriage unit, is important to the fiber of society. Something that is eroding quickly in America, sadly. But He knew it is instrumental for a healthy family and for a healthy society he knew that men and women can relate to this and so when he's trying to reach israel he would use the terms of romance like a man and a woman in fact he got so desperate to reach his people that remember i said that israel fell about a hundred years ago long ago when when we had the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah. God was reaching both of them, sending prophets to warn them, you are facing judgment. Now at this time, Israel had already fallen. They were in Assyria. Assyria had captured them. But before they fell, he sent prophets to warn them. One of those prophets was Hosea. hundred years ago, approximately, before Jeremiah came. 
And God understood, okay, these people, I created them, I know how they operate. They can relate to the importance of being faithful to, to your marriage. That these people know when, when a woman isn't faithful or a man isn't faithful, it's heartbreaking. And so he did something very radical. And he, he had Hosea do something unimaginable because he wanted Israel to know how important his relationship with his people were. And so he instructed Hosea to marry a prostitute, Gomer. And he wanted Israel to realize, you know, Hosea would become a living illustration of how God felt as Israel was apostatizing and committing spiritual adultery by going after false gods. And that drove the point home. God meant business. He, He... He wants to stress how important it is that you and I realize this covenant relationship with Him is so important. Sadly, that living illustration, which, um, you know, Hosea, the challenge for Hosea was to love a woman that wasn't faithful, and he did that. Just like he was the picture of God. You know, no matter how many times Israel went after, you know, whoredom and idolatry, spiritual idolatry, he still loved them. So now we fast forward 100 years, and we've got Jeremiah, and uh, he, is, he wants Israel to relate. So we look at Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. For of old time, he says, For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou saidest, I will not transgress, when upon every high hill... And under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Playing the harlot, the prostitute, the unfaithful woman, the immoral woman. So he's using this again, this whole picture. Of old time, he says, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. What is that a reference to? He broke the yoke, the bands? Um, What he's talking about is that... He's talking about, obviously, about their idolatrous worship. But it goes back to the statement in chapter 1 where he says, you know, he uses the word espoused. Again, romance, husband and wife, these pictures. And uh, he wants them to know that, uh, that he broke the yoke. Uh, it's, it's a figure of a, a beast who had a yoke to, uh, in order for them to be manageable so like they could plow the field, they would put a big yoke on them. And that the yoke is often a picture of either a heavy weight or something that binds us. For example, in the New Testament, God tells Christians, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you're a born-again believer and you yoke together, in other words, if you get married to someone that's not saved, that would be an unequal yoke that God challenges us not to do if you're, if you're, you know, if you're saved before you're married. Now again, People get married after they're saved and then they get saved and their wife's not saved or the wife gets saved and the husband's not saved. Uh, and that, that's a matter which needs incredible prayer. But he's talking about this. In fact, listen to what he said. Let's go way back in our minds. You don't need to turn there. I'll quote it. We go back, way back to Leviticus chapter 26 when God speaks to Israel. So this was before the, their, their time in Egypt and before their bondage, he says... 
or this is actually after Egypt. He says this in verse 13. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. Now he's already mentioned in chapter 1, he referred to the fact several times, I have delivered you. Remember that word, the Hebrew word, I delivered you, I delivered you. And here he's talking about that again. Of old time I have broken thy yoke, burst thy bands. And then here was their response. They said, I will not transgress. So they, this was part of it. They entered into a covenant with him. Yes, Lord, we love you. We respond to that love. Like a woman that says, I do. We said, I do to, to Jehovah. And yet, sadly, the second part of verse 20, went upon every high hill, and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. That is clearly a picture of the practices of the Canaanite idolatry, the false religion. Baal, when you see Baal, throughout the book of Jeremiah, you're going to see Baal. Baal was a false god, but it is in the plural. It's literally many Baals, uh, B-A-A-L, that was a false god of the Canaanites. And it was everywhere rampant in Canaan. They had different kind of versions of it. That's why it is a plural term. And sometimes the word Baal in the book of Jeremiah isn't just referring to only Baal, but they also worship Moloch. They also worshiped Ashtaroth. Those were some of the primary gods of the Assyrians. And a plethora of other gods. And sometimes in the book of Jeremiah, they'll just refer to Baal as false. They're false gods that the Canaanites worshiped. And that when Israel went into the promised land and they saw the nations around them worshiping this false god, these false gods, they became enamored. They suddenly became discontent with their relationship with Yahweh. And they suddenly were enticed. So even though they made a commitment, they said, I will not transgress. And yet, upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, uh, this actually is a reference that goes back to Hosea. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but Hosea chapter 4, verse 13, uh, and Amos as well. He was another prophet during that time. Amos chapter 2 and verse 7, where uh, the same image of an unfaithful spouse was used to try to reach the northern tribe, Israel. But uh, unfortunately, they embraced the pagan idolatry of the land around them. And by the way, folks, that has been a challenge down through the ages for Christians uh, in the New Testament. First John, we went through First John not too long ago. John said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What is he talking about? He's talking about the carnal elements of worldliness. He's not talking about loving people or um, being blessed and enjoying this life. There's other verses that talk about if you will love life. Uh, folks, God created this world and He created all things for us to enjoy. So when He's saying don't love the world, He's not saying, you know, become a hermit somewhere on top of a mountain and, you know, renounce all world, you know, all possessions and, and deprive yourself like many of the monks used to do. He's not saying that. But He's talking about the worldly sinful elements of pleasure hedonism, the things that Solomon went after to provide satisfaction, those are the things 
that we are challenged with. Now look at verse 21. He says, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, a holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Planted thee a noble vine, holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine? What he's saying, he's using, and, and by the way, in the next few verses, however far we get, he uses these images uh, that these people can clearly relate to. He uses the image of a vine. He uses the image of a stain that won't come out, though you wash it uh, all you know vigorously. And then he uses uh, the picture of a wild donkey and a camel uh, that are in heat. To put it bluntly, that's what he's talking about. Um, but let's go back to this here, this noble vine. He says again, I have planted thee a noble vine. That's a specifically the Hebrew word, a soric vine. It's mentioned in Genesis 49, 11, Isaiah 5, 2. It literally speaks of a vine. Uh, it was from uh, the vine of a deep purple grape that was very abundant in Palestine. And um, it was a very healthy, very prosperous, very popular vine, healthy. And God's saying, okay, I planted you a healthy vine. And there's so much in that. that, In fact, let's just park here for a minute. When God planted Israel, when He called Israel, He had big plans for them. He called them, and His plan was for them to be fruitful and to be blessed, just like you know grapes off of a vine. A holy, a right seed. In other words, by the way, they weren't that now, were they? They were, you know, they were wicked. They had walked out on God. And what he's saying basically is he's saying, what happened to you? It was not God to blame. God was saying, when I planted you, I planted you a noble vine. When I initially established you, it was a right seed. Now think about this. Any farmer, any, uh, any vineyard owner, when he plants vines, he has expectations for those, does he not? He purchases the seeds based on what he knows how good they are. He looks for a vineyard. And by the way, this is a picture that uh, the prophets of God, Hosea specifically, used for the northern tribes a hundred years ago, except he used the whole vineyard. And so many think that, um, that Jeremiah is using that picture, but going down to the very vine. But when, when a, again, a vineyard owner plants, he's got expectations. And he's, he's already thinking of the fruit, the, the, the grapes that are going to come in abundance. And now that was Israel. At least that was Israel how he started. But he says, How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine, a wild vine? They became worthless. They became horrid. Uh, they became you know, a corrupt vine that could no longer produce fruit that would be delicious or tasty, that became Israel. He was using that as a picture to say, what happened to you? And again, it was not God's fault. Recently, I had the privilege to speak with two young ladies in our church. Um, One of them made a profession that night. And uh, it was a blessing. These two ladies, young gals, just... uh, Two hours, they just peppered me with questions. I love that. I just love that. They were so hungry. And their questions were good. I mean, they were thinking. 
And, uh, and one of the questions they asked was, you know, and it's a legitimate question. You know, well, why, why does God allow evil? Why didn't, he just, why didn't he just stop it? Why didn't he kill the devil? You know, that's a good question. And so many people uh, have dismissed God. You know, that's Bart, uh, what's his name? I met him, what is it? Bart Erdman. Is that who it is? Yeah, he's the uh, world atheist. Yeah, that's the guy. Okay, thank you. Bart Ehrman, that's the guy. I mentioned him this morning for some reason. Um, you know, he's one of those that he, he, calls, he calls God a monster. He says, I couldn't in good conscience worship a God that punishes and kills innocent things, whatever. He, he's painted God as a monster. He's forsaken God. He's renounced his Christianity, which he used to embrace. And he now, again, he is America's leading atheist. He initially was... Considered an atheist, now I think he calls himself an agnostic, but he repudiates the God of the Bible. And he lays at God's feet every evil thing that has happened in this world. And so this question that came to me is a legitimate question. And it goes back to this verse. What happened to Israel? And and I share with these precious gals, God could have created Adam and Eve as robots. He could have said, okay, I'm going to make you, and you don't have a choice. I, I planted a tree in the middle of the garden, but, but I've programmed you so you, you can't touch it. He didn't do that. He could have made robots. He could have made them so they had no free will of their own, and they just did what he said. But he didn't do that. He could have made it impossible for them to get to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he planted it smack dab in the middle of the garden. Because he created, and he created them innocent. In other words, they had the potential to choose right. Which is, he wanted them to have that option. Folks, you and I have the right, uh, opportunity to choose right. And so when they had the opportunity to choose right, and they chose wrong, it was on them. So God did not create robots and. He, He did not make you a robot. He has given us the opportunity to choose him or not to choose him. And just like with Israel, when he established Israel, his hope, his dream, his blessing was, I want you to prosper. I have planted you a noble vine, a holy, a right seed. How art then turned into the degenerate plant? Again, what's he talking about he's talking about the fact that they forsook god and went after false gods they played the harlot spiritually by the way when you study the canaanite religions uh, you know of of baal of moloch of ashtoreth and some of the others they were often uh the nature of their the cultic religion that they were was it was of a sexual nature. And so in their temples, they had male and female prostitutes that were part of their pagan religion. Every one of them. And so this is, again, part of why God uses this picture here of a faithful husband and a faithful wife. And he wants them to know that their going after false gods was just like a wife being unfaithful or a husband being unfaithful to his wife. I've had the privilege, and I've, I've talked about my dad, and I'm going to talk about him again. I wasn't planning on it, but 
the more I plan on studied this text, um, many of you know my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor, um, and he, this past week he had it removed. And as a family, um, it has really brought our, f- I mean, our family's been close, but um, because we've all had to rally around to help my mom and my dad, uh, it's just, it's, there's been so many blessings. And as I talked to my brother-in-law, and he reflected on my mom and dad's relationship, and as we have seen them, um, you know, interact and respond to what's going on, uh, it suddenly dawned on me, I have seen one of the great romances of our century. You know, my mom loves my dad. My dad loves my mom. They've been married for over 60-some years. How, how long have they been married? 67. We just talked about that with the siblings. 67 years, and they still hold hands. They go for walks. And when my dad was diagnosed and went in the hospital, it was the first time in forever that he was really ripped apart from my mom. And he was out of sorts. Our biggest thing as siblings is, you know what, whatever happens to my dad, whatever he does, he decides with this brain tumor, whether to get it or not, they want to be together. And we want to keep them together as long as possible. And it has been so precious. Yesterday uh, was such a blessing to me. It it almost brought us to tears. Uh, My dad had the tumor removed. He's on the mend and so he's going to have a little more time. Uh, but because he had such major surgery trauma to his brain, he goes in and out of lucidness, con- you know, not consciousness. Sometimes he talks and he doesn't make sense. Sometimes he imagines things. And yesterday, uh, he has his good days where he's totally... In fact, this is praise to the Lord. I've mentioned this already. Hours after surgery, he had a brain tumor removed. He comes back to his room. We walk in. And he, he calls each, each by name. I mean, that is an answer to prayer. Because we're thinking, okay, he's going to be out of it for at least the next 24 hours. So he calls us all by name and he goes, how's mom doing with her nebulizer treatments? And then he started naming the times that my mom does a nebulizer treatment. And we're just like, glory to God. That was awesome. Uh, but so he is still, as he's recuperating, he has his good days and his bad days. Yesterday, uh, he was imagining things at times. And the thing that was just so touching was that he thought my mom was right next to him, right next to him and next to his bed. And uh, so while we're sitting there, we spent all day there yesterday, he would just say, hun, hun, talk to me, just say something. And, and when he wouldn't hear anything, he would, be, he would get despair. He says, I just want to hear your voice, just tell me you're okay. And then he wouldn't hear anything. And he would say, oh, he said, this is horrible. And he just, he just was falling to pieces because he thought something happened to mom. So I get up and I go over and go, dad, it's okay. Mom's at home. My brother and his wife are, are taking care of mom's good. We just talked to her. She's okay. And he'd look at me and be like, really? Oh, that's such good news. And he'd be so happy. And then a half an hour later, he'd be in there and he'd go, oh, Betty, I just want to, would you say something? Why aren't you talking? Why aren't you talking? He'd get in despair again. I'd have to go up and I'd have to, I'd have to assure him, Dad, it's okay. Mom's okay. She's at home. And he'd be like, okay. And, and, you know, praise the Lord. This is just part of his healing process. And he doesn't know, you know, his heart is leading him. Like he's just talking. He misses his sweetheart. What a romance. 
I am so blessed to see that. You know, when I start losing my mind, which I'm already starting to do, I want to say that. I want to say things like that about my sweetie. You know, I hope I do. I hope I don't like talk about the flyers or something stupid like that. You know, I, I want to talk about my sweetie, the thing that means the most to me. So we have seen this beautiful romance. And it is a picture. It's something that marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Marriage is supposed to be a picture. Uh, in fact, in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, we don't have time to go there. But God says marriage is supposed to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So this, is just, this isn't just Old Testament stuff. This is New Testament stuff. That our, we are the brides of Christ. Now I know, men, it's not mainly to be considered a bride. We are the bride of Christ. He is the groom. That's how much he loves us. By the way, there is going to be a major marriage supper, wedding ceremony, a marriage supper of the land that we're going to be a part of. And man, that's going to be glorious. It's going to be a culmination. I believe it's going to happen right after the rapture when we get to heaven. Uh, and I hope you're going to be there. But let's, let's take this opportunity to realize, just like Israel God wants a relationship with us. He wants an intimate relationship with us so that we fall in love with Him. Let's not lose our first love. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us, Father, to understand uh, the blessing of um, just the relationship that You've enabled us to have. Uh, and Father, I know that everybody starts out and people want... They want to have that uh, fairy tale romance. Every young woman wants to be swept off her feet, most of them. And um, Lord, we understand that uh, because we live in a sin-cursed world, that um, sin has entered into the world, and so not everybody gets to experience that. Uh, but Lord, for those of us that are, are blessed to have that or to witness that in others, like my parents, Lord, thank you for that. And thank you that no matter what our situation is regarding human relationships, men with women, women with men, uh, Father, no matter, we can have that intimate relationship with you. You want us to be the bridegroom, or the bride rather, you are the groom. You want us to have that intimate relationship. And it begins when we get saved. And so, Father, I pray for folks that are listening watching that are not born again they're not saved they may be religious but they don't have that personal relationship with you and i pray father that they would get that that they'd be become born again which is the only way to enter into that covenant relationship with you and that they would get to experience what it is to walk with god and we'll thank you for it we pray in jesus precious name amen